welcome to part two of the History of Military Anesthesia podcast. In this episode, Jack questions Peter about the emerging threats from Iraq and Afghanistan, which demanded a completely different approach and considerable clinical agility and innovation. Jag and Peter also look at the politics behind the scenes and bring us up to date with current developments. Because of the nature of warfare, the experience of the anaesthetists involved, recorded here, may sometimes be disturbing. Peter, let me ask you, um, I've talked at length about how things had kind of meandered from uh, innovation through to stagnation. So round about the time when the the period of uh, continuous operations, as I call it, uh, the Balkans, uh, Sierra Leone, and the Gulf War began. Where did you actually, from wearing your hat as a academic, plus also someone who has been very influential in uh, light forces, meaning forces that travel very lightly uh, to set up very austere uh, facilities, where did you see our specialty at the time? Ah, that's a hard one. <laughs> Because um, I, I came into the regulars in 2002. I'd been away, actually, with the military as a reservist in 2001 and was on a deployment when the uh, Twin Towers were attacked on an American base, as it as it happens. And you could see that, that dreadful event. And we were all thinking to ourselves, well, we know what's going to happen now. You know, the, the world is changing under our feet. And a number of us came across from reserve forces into the regular forces within surgery, anaesthesia and emergency medicine. And I suppose the thing that struck me was there was a lack of consistency, certainly across the army. Mm. There were areas of really well-developed, well-thought-through clinical protocol with people pressure-testing them constantly, and there was sleepy hollows. Yeah, yeah. There was was very complacent areas, units structures were sort of think X isn't going to happen, Y is not going to happen, we're not going to be needed. And even when you've got the Twin Towers crumbling in front of you on the television screens, there was still this complacency. So was that your watershed moment then, the Twin Towers? Well, that's when I decided I would move from the reserves to the regulars. I had been interviewed for the regulars previously and been offered a place, but I found the commissioning board so disagreeable. And I guess a different story <laughs> that I'd um, declined the offer. But we had another conversation and it was um, Brigadier Ivan was very helpful. They said, well, actually, the offer's still there if you want it. So, so I, I came across and I thought, yeah, well, clearly there's going to be a lot of, lot of stuff going on. Having been told up until that point that the army did not need people with a trauma anaesthesia skill set. Quite forcibly on a number of occasions, no, we don't need that. There's no requirement for that. There was suddenly a realisation that they might need people with a trauma anaesthesia skill set. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked in Johannesburg, I'd done the helicopter in London, and I'd been away with the aid agencies to try and build this experience and understanding from whichever appropriate environments I could get. And frantically read biographies and autobiographies of people who've been involved in conflicts to understand their approach to combat anaesthesia and trauma anaesthesia. Early on as a trainee, it was the book by Joe Stoddard, Trauma and the Anaesthetist, was very helpful to give some sort of structure. So after the Twin Towers, I thought, yeah, well, this is time to come across. So you knew that our capabilities had to be different? Yeah, well, I kind of thought, you're either in it or you're not. 
Amadori on this side of the fence, as opposed to that side of the fence. And from the early experience within the Iraq war, kind of said to me that we need to drive things forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, I must also hasten to add that the military anesthesia comprises three uh, elements, uh, maritime, air and land-based. We are talking mostly about the land-based because each of them has its own challenges, but I do believe that the land component has the most complexity. So we will, that's what we're talking about today. I knew that we were onto a different challenge. It's all to do with energy transfer, what the enemy is trying to throw at you. I still remember this very unfortunate young man, this Kingsman um, soldier in Iraq who had been shot by a sniper and just literally five minutes away from us, really. And uh, he came in talking, but grey. All he had was an entry wound in his axilla. We, we were not going to leave it there. Obviously, he was uh, scheduled for immediate exploration. Sadly, the path of the, the trajectory of the bullet had gone into his liver and had completely churned it up. So the poor fellow would not have survived uh, even in the uh, top-notch uh, hospitals, let alone in a tent. But the thing that struck me then was the first time was how insufficient uh, blood supplies we had for the kind of injuries we were beginning to attract. Also, when we had a tremendous blast injury, we found that the sheer violence of the blast had caused so much injury. And as yet, we didn't have the protocols that we were talking about hadn't matured enough for us to be able to follow them. Again, there was a sense of frustration. I knew that a lot of work was already commencing, but hadn't quite happened yet. So that was, for me, the moment and I realized things had to change. Which brings me on to my, my next question. You always had an interest in ballistic trauma. Is yes. that when it began? Well, I had an interest in ballistic trauma for a, a long time, right. so prior to that. And did you think that there wasn't sufficient knowledge within the military anaesthetic world? Well, it wasn't at people's fingertips. And, and I remember, again, from Iraq, a casualty where a group of us were deployed in the hospital, it must have been about perhaps 2003, 2004, looking at an X-ray and not understanding what these objects were on the X-ray. And they were actually parts of the aluminium structure of a Land Rover, which had been blown into the casualty. And that really was an indication of our collective naivety. It was, you know, later on, it was no surprise at all to be able to read the imaging and understand what had happened. I had mentioned energy transfer, and it is about the transfer of energy, isn't it, from the projectile into yes, the body? Yes, So there was a, this is information that our predecessors would have known from First World War and Second World War, but there was a really a need to get a more global understanding across the carders. And at the time, before I was prof, I became a senior lecturer in... Um, military critical care within Royal Centre for Defence Medicine, working for Tim Hodgetts, who's now our Surgeon General, and Tim was the Professor of Emergency Medicine. And there was a collection of like-minded military academics who really became the war professors. It was Mark Midwinter for surgery, Tim for emergency medicine, later on myself for anaesthesia, and a number of senior lecturers. So you had a group of individuals who were really feeling that we need to be changing the way we think and train and deliver. And when you've talked about the need to engage with the equipment people, it's also the requirement to engage with the defence supply, DENS, the defence equipment and supplies, and our academic colleagues in places like the Defence Science and 
technology laboratory at Porton Down who were thinking about casualty protocols and thinking about resuscitation. So once you had this critical mass of individuals recognising that a global rethink and restructure was required, then we were able to make progress. And it wasn't always straightforward. So we had our own trauma course, Battlefield Advanced Trauma Life Support, based on the successful ATLS course. And that had been brought across by Surgeon Brigadier Ian Haywood in the late 80s to the, the military. And it had pretty much stayed fairly constant uh, based on ATLS protocols, except with a bit of a military flavouring. We recognised that there was a need to revisit tourniquets and revisit a massive hemorrhage control. And there were barriers to doing that. There was a lot of resistance to tourniquets being introduced from uh, orthopaedic and other colleagues saying tourniquets threaten limbs. And our argument was, yes, they threaten limbs, but without them, lives are threatened. There was a lot of resistance from the NGO community whose experience had been people under going prolonged evacuation for hours and days. And yes, if you make a limb ischemic without blood flow for a long period of time, you will lose the limb. But in the battle space that we were in, our evacuation timelines were relatively short. So with dealing with high-velocity injuries, high-energy transfer injuries, significant bleeding, and practically no other way to control bleeding, we had to revisit tourniquets and look at things like the novel hemostatics as they were originally devices like uh, Quick Clot, then Hemcon, and other trade names of hemostatic agents. By having surgery, emergency medicine, and John Clasper became the prof of trauma orthopaedics, having that grouping working together, we were able to change the way uh, training was done and the way it was delivered. There were barriers. I had one conversation with an individual in um, uh, what was would have been the training headquarters. Um, I was saying, we need to change some of the first aid protocols to this. And he was saying, no, we can't. You're changing too quickly. My typists, administrators and people running the courses can't keep up with the changes. So I'm not changing the manual. The manual change has to wait until this time when we have a proper review by a committee. So I just asked him if I could spell his name for me so I got it correctly when I was referring death to the coroner to explain why protocols had not been executed the way they needed to be. And when we got over that hump, we were able to initiate the changes we required. Underhand tactics. Honest tactics. Honest tactics, yeah. This um, cohort of uh, changemakers you describe, did you encounter much pushback from the wider military or, in fact, actually, did you get unexpected support? We got very good support. Well, I feel we got good support from people on the ground because we were there. We were in the hospitals. We were engaging with the commanders. They could see us treating their soldiers. And there was a philosophy that when you became a defence professor... Perhaps you shouldn't deploy. Your, your space was back in the UK doing good deeds and sitting there scratching your head when the data came in and offering erudite judgment on how things should go forward. But pragmatically, none of us believed that. Again, they thought you're either in it or you're not. And so we were all deploying and it meant that we were there looking at the injury patterns, managing the soldiers, engaging with the commanders and taking the risks. You know, in my case, on the helicopters, picking up casualties and... The other guys' cases, they were enduring in the later Iraq conflicts the indirect fire that was coming in into the bases. And by sharing that environment, 
with our colleagues and our patient group. You're not taking the same risk as them. You're not engaging in sort of the combat the same way they are, but you are sharing the environment. So you have a shared understanding of the environment. They can see us working, and I believe we're supportive of what we were doing, and they could see what we were doing. Just going back to the um, different way, so to speak, of clinical thinking around subjects that had suddenly become very pertinent in latter Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, mostly um, due to perhaps the increased ferocity of the explosive devices the insurgents were using. How did you go about ensuring buy-in from the wider cadre for jobbing anaesthetists like me? Um, I have to go a stage back and say that 2005, I took a couple of patients from our hospital in Iraq up to Baghdad because they had facilities we didn't have. So it was a transfer by Hercules aircraft and um, went to see the American Combat Support Hospital in Baghdad and just watched a stream of Blackhawks arriving and casualties being offloaded and um, spent a bit of time seeing what was going on. But I'd taken my two casualties in and thought, I need to come here. So I then nagged constantly when I got back, did a, some extra stuff. I fulfilled my requirements on our deployment rotor. So there's no reason now why you can't let me go to Baghdad and deployed to Baghdad to work with the Americans because they were really working very hard. You know, we had, I think in the top operating theatres, we had four adjacent tables. We had an extra one downstairs for neuro. And there were times when they were just constantly working and I'd either be managing a table or I'd be the floor anaesthetist triaging and working. And we had some very influential thinking individuals there at the time. There was John Holcomb, who has driven a lot of the military battlefield protocols. And Colonel John was extremely generous with his knowledge and his thoughts and shared their thoughts on early blood transfusion, shared their thoughts on hemostatics. And we had this constant conversation going on among this sort of ferocious clinical environment. And I was able to bring that learning back and bring the protocols back that had been generously shared and take that to Tim Hodgetts as the military prof who I was working for and take it to the wider defence academic community and say, this is what's happening in Baghdad. This is what the Americans are doing. This is what we need to do. And we need to engage our carders. And so to engage our cadre, we sat down with Neil Maguire. He was appointed defence advisor at the time I was appointed a defence professor. And it was about engaging the energy and expertise within our cadre. There's plenty of it. It'd be wrong to see our cadre as passive and disinterested because it's not the case. It was energetic, interested people working hard. And it was our role as the defence academics to offer a sort of a, a bubble within which people could work, think and develop their ideas. So we developed special interest groups because no one can do everything. So we had special interest groups and in equipment, pain, paediatrics, humanitarian, academia. And that meant members of our cadre were empowered across the three services to own problems and think of problems and think about solutions. And then it was our job as the senior lecturers and later professor to take those solutions and roll in the dirt with the, with the wider military to get the funding and changes in protocol that was required. But it's an effort really between all the profs mm. engaging all the carders and linking in, say, to DSTL, as I mentioned before, and DENS and others, and harness the wider energy of the of the wider machine. Yeah, 
Yeah, fascinating. You um, mentioned working with American colleagues in Baghdad. Yes. Um, you were very successful later on in continuing to forge these very sound links with uh, the American military and other allies. And that resulted in that magnificent uh, Borden uh, textbook. How did that begin? Uh, Borden textbook, that, that is a multi-author big anesthesia book. I think in an earlier discussion, we've talked about the Hamilton Bailey's surgery, emergency surgery, the Second World War, and how the anesthesia pages are very few. And there's some lovely observations in there about if the patient goes blue, consider oxygen, which I think are fantastic. Normally, for those listening, we would not like to get to that stage of the patient going blue. We'd like to have dealt with it long before then. But it, it kind of showed that, again, anesthesia was growing and understanding of injury and physiology was still developing. Now, we had the discussion in the tent that we were sharing in Iraq about the need to formalize and harness the, the card of knowledge. I, I was after a, I think it's, it's a wrong to call it a recipe book. I think I just wanted a distillation of all our collective experiences into one. Uh, easy to uh, carry around book for use but then that transmogrified into something quite magnificent thank you um, and we had the we had the field surgery pocketbook and there's a little anesthesia component in that and there was plans for a late tradition and that we all wrote for that and nothing happened but after our discussion I think it was 2009 in Afghanistan I was deployed with American anesthetist Trip Buckemeyer who was a pain authority yeah. uh, well known to you and well known to a lot of our colleagues now and we're able to get trip deployed to our field hospital to really start building up our knowledge and understanding of regional anesthesia and continuous regional anesthesia for the long transports back from the field as we were Afghanistan back to the UK so that people with these horrendous injuries could have decent pain management on the way back. I spoke a lot with Trip about this is what we think we need and he agreed there's something they needed and he said well if we go through the Borden Institute we can get it funded because I've got a number of textbooks I've been involved with um, ballistic trauma, blast injury book and a load of others and the big hurdle is convincing a publisher that this is worthwhile, that they actually want to fund the development of a book. And for anyone thinking of writing a medical textbook, let me assure you, it's not any way to make money. No way to make money at all. We donate our royalties to various military charities, but if you were thinking of making money, don't write a medical textbook. So we spoke to Trip about this, and then we drew up a short list of subjects we wanted and then authors we wanted. And that was 2009, and we finally got it published, I think, in 2015. And those six years represent the highs and lows I mean, transatlantic yeah. multi-author textbook where files were sent across and then a member of their staff was being taken out of their job and as revenge they locked all the files so we couldn't have them so we had to sort of approach people to get more files and then there were people you get them clear instructions of what you'd like them to write on and they write on something completely different and then towards the end when it was ready to go there were political machinations from other specialties saying well hang on we're not represented enough in this book we should be in there our name should be on it and I was very clear as I have been with all the academic projects if you haven't been in it and written in it and been part of it your name's not on it we'll have none of this vanity stuff and so there was a bit of a battle with some pruning some attempted vanity uh, additions to our author and editor list this is just not happening this is just academically wrong can I 
interrupt for a moment and take you right back because what you're talking about is really super specialist training material. It isn't, it isn't. It's, well, our, our book is very broad. Mm, no, no, yeah. I understand yeah. that. But I want to go right back because okay. some of the people who taught me had been involved in the Second World War. Oh, okay. And basically many of them had been just deployed and conscripted and their anaesthetic training was see one, do one, teach one. And then they got interested and went on to become distinguished anaesthetists at Guy's Hospital. <laughs> I understand that your anaesthetists will be trained in a standard way. At what point do they become and what do you do to make them specialist military anaesthetists? Um, it's an important question. And the answer really depends on at what point in time in history you're looking at that. And you've described very elegantly the reality for colleagues in the Second World War. If you look what happens now, people will join the army. If they join the army as a student, they make it a bursary and get some payment for the latter half of their studies. Then they will do their FY doctor time. And then after that, they'll go to their individual single service, Army, Navy or Air Force, and do their introduction to that particular service. And the army tend to do general duties. Well, then they all do general duties to some extent. So they're now becoming that little bit older compared to civilian colleagues. And then then, if they're going to become a specialist in anaesthesia, they then come back to the NHS and do their training, the same as an NHS doctor. But within the training, there is a module on military anaesthesia. Well, that really should be done if you're a military anaesthetist. And there's also the opportunities to engage with field hospital exercises and... Um, elective periods to understand a bit more about the military. To me, you know, your real education begins on deployment, and we were able to take trainees into Bastion. That was our hospital in Afghanistan, and at least give them an introduction to the realities of military anaesthesia, which, for, for me, when I, I first deployed as an SHO, I mentioned in the Gulf, and it was very much, right, you're, you're mobilised as a member of the reserves, off you go. And having been studying it for some time, I felt I had a background to at least understand it, that looked for courses like the Oxford course. But I'd like to think now that because of this training pathway, the people who we now have joining our consultant card is, are that better prepared. Jack, what do you think? Yes, very, very much so. And um, if I may add, uh, Maria, um, military anaesthesia, I don't think is just anaesthesia being given in, in the military. It's much more than that. Of course. I would suggest it's actually a state of mind. And I think it's that state of mind is where some individuals come a cropper in not being able to engage with that, even though they may well have all the technical prowess, but failing to engage with this required state of mind can be the downfall. I'm, I would commend folks to look up an uh, excellent paper in the recent BJA by Craig Webster, Ravi Mahajan and others, where they've looked at 100 years of the operating room and have proposed a socio-technical model mm. that fits the operating room. And I would suggest this is a very good fit for military anesthesia, the social bit being this indefinable psychological contract that fosters cohesion, common purpose, but is the technical expertise that obviously changes from generation to generation. Generation. And when both of these are in perfect balance, I think you are as close to excellence as is possible. I think that's a very elegant way of describing it. If I can perhaps use my experience as a deployed medical director on the hospital in Afghanistan and prior to that as clinical director on a number of occasions at the hospital in Iraq, any one time you had a lot of people working well together. 
And I can say on virtually every occasion, out of those hundreds of people working together, every occasion I had at least five problem children. And it didn't matter if they went home, they'd be replaced by another one. And these were individuals from different specialities and different backgrounds, from private soldiers to senior colonels who had come into the deployed environment, or theatre as we call it, not to be confused with the operating theatre, but had come into the deployed environment and just were incapable of finding the correct mindset, absolutely incapable. And it was either they did not recognise where they were They didn't recognise the need to work within a team. They were obsessed with little personal issues about their own comfort or their own destiny. Or they came with baggage from home. Or they'd been given a rank too quickly and didn't understand the implications of it. So they did not know how to behave in that complex military environment with the rank that they were wearing and had to be sat down and almost explained in an ABC fashion about what you need to do to survive in this environment and say, look, a bit like uh, we, we talked about the line, the witch in the wardrobe, to say to people, mm. you're through the wardrobe now, you're in Narnia, these are the rules by which you need to behave. And in many cases, you're only here for six weeks. Let's see if you can do that for me for six weeks and you can be a useful part of the hospital. If not, I'm looking to replace you. You see, there is a principle in infantry called mutual support, which is a very army technical term. If I can reduce that to uh, describe it, the deployed environment, it's where uh, every individual, every soldier in that case, but every individual is supported by a network web of supporters mm-hmm. who in themselves have individually the ability to produce clinical effect. So the collection becomes quite formidable, really. But for that to work, every piece has to, to fire <laughs> effectively. Uh, again, going back to the infantry, if there is a failure on one it can have an effect on the whole, really. So it's all to do with interconnectedness and support, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Also, Peter, don't you think anaesthetists in general, and, and certainly military anaesthetists are no exception, have proved themselves to be very capable in, in roles outside the operating theatres, both clinical and non-clinical, clinical as in pain management, uh, critical care, uh, strategic and tactical aeromedical evacuation, DMD, the deployed medical director, you were one yourself. What is it that makes anaesthetists successful in these roles, you think? Again, another plug for the, the fellows' room. If you go downstairs to the fellows' room, there's a little poster on the wall that talks about what are the ideal qualities of an anaesthetist. And clearly there's the technical skills, being able to safely put someone to sleep, manage the physiology, then bring them back. But there's also the interpersonal skills. There's the interaction with the whole theatre team, as in everybody, the, the runners, the healthcare assistants, the nursing staff, the ODPs, the anaesthesia specialists and our surgical colleagues. And I think if you're doing it and thinking about it, you have to interact with all these people because you need a consideration of the logistics, getting the patients to and from theatre, the supplies within theatre, understanding the nuances of people's behaviour. So are the surgeons struggling? Are things going the way they expected? Do you need to change what you're doing? Do you need to adapt what you're doing? So there's constant human factors environment that we are placed into really gives us an ongoing education in team working and leadership and team management. That was one of the reasons I did the MBA was to develop my understanding further, having had command of a 
isolated unit. I thought, well, there's a lot more to learn about this and a lot more to build on other than what we learn just in our clinical training. That's very true. When I did my MBA, my tutor said uh, management is about people. Yeah. Never a truer word, really. Yeah. I think that's it. I think to do anaesthesia and do it appropriately, you do need to think about the broader environment. And if you just want to go in, technically deliver an anaesthetic, deliver the patient to recovery and walk out, yes, you're doing the job or doing a version of the job, but you're not really engaging to the full extent with the team around you and managing their expectations and hopefully them having a good day and by doing that everyone having a good outcome. This is a philosophical question. Would you then say, to use the modern vernacular, anaesthetists perhaps possess more um, emotional intelligence than some others? I think emotional intelligence is a good term. Um, I wouldn't say all anaesthetists possess that. I can think of plenty who don't. I can think of plenty I've sat across the examination table from as a candidate who certainly didn't possess emotional intelligence. And I can think of many other colleagues, uh, certainly lots of surgical and other colleagues who, who possess an enormous amounts of emotional intelligence. But I would say that emotional intelligence and empathy are an important component of what we do if we're doing it effectively. And I'm not saying I've always had it. I think it's something that grows with you if you're open to it. And I can think of how I would handle situations now and perhaps how I handled them 30-odd years ago would be very different. Can I add an addendum to your question, which sure. you may be going to cover, but situational awareness is very much... I mean, the anaesthetist in, in the operating theatre is often the hub of the situational awareness, in, in my experience. Any comment on, on that? Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, situation awareness is required at all times in anaesthesia, even more so in the military, because you also have to keep be aware of actual threats to yourself, your, your colleagues and to your patients in terms of, I think uh, Peter mentioned, incoming mortar fire in Iraq, which was quite a nuisance, really, because the tent next door being taken out by a mortar strike is quite uh, unsettling. Uh, so you need to be situationally aware in terms of balancing your approach as per need and, and uh, supporting colleagues uh, is taken as read almost. Really. I think I was very lucky in that respect. I know in the latter stages of Iraq, you guys were hammered. Well, when I was in Baghdad, we had a bit of rocket fire coming in, but nothing as unpleasant as what was happening to the uh, logistics base. And certainly Afghanistan, we had a bit of rocket fire coming in and plenty going out. But I'm delighted to say oh, I've never been that close yeah, I mean, this situational awareness also extends to a decent understanding of the so-called big picture. I remember going to the sergeant major's office one day and asking to see the big picture, where is it kept? And he was very rude. Some of the individuals Peter mentioned who didn't quite get to grips with the deployed environment are probably because they haven't quite made the effort to make themselves situationally aware, to actually understand what exactly they're there for. It sounds rather trite, but I think it is actually a seriousness behind that. We all know that the Royal College of Anistas, the Association of Anistas, and the deaneries, they've been of great support to us. You yourself have been a recipient of uh, considerable support from the Royal College uh, with your professorial appointment and so forth. Do you think that this support was earned by us? Ah, good question. <laughs> was it earned? I mean, it's... 
I mean, certainly when I when I was appointed, I couldn't say it was earned because clearly the Royal College beneath this was very supportive of the concept of having academic anaesthesia in the military. And we needed it because there was a perception that anaesthetists didn't need to do research and surgeons needed to do it because they needed the higher degrees. And they were very much involved in research that was our bread and butter. Hence, there was a recognition that actually, no, we needed to be part of that and part of that story and part of that conversation. So the college was extremely supportive prior to my appointment and at my appointment. And then ongoing source of advice in terms of managing institutions, people and situations and tremendous support when I wanted to appoint lecturers and senior lecturers to build the CADA. So having a, a Royal College appointed honorary lecturer or senior lecturer has some authority behind it, doing what the military used to do, which is saying you're now professor, you're now senior lecturer and appointing people without the appropriate academic background or approach meant that there was a bit of a doldrum in some areas. The college lending the machinery of processing these applications and validating these applications was very, very helpful and very, very important. And I always found the individual college presidents throughout my tenure as, as deaf prof very willing to open a door. When I was prof, we had Judith, we had Peter Nightingale, we had JP, we had Liam Brennan. So we had individuals who really put themselves out. And I was also, I had sage advice from Sir Peter Simpson and Professor Peter Hutton as well, all of whom had deep experience of politics, people and the clinical environment. So yes, I had lots of support. Yes. Who knows, there might even be a military anaesthetist as a college president in the future. Well, that's a very interesting prospect. There is no earthly reason why not. And I, for one, would very much like to see it in due course. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd want to thank the two of you. We could go on much longer. And what we haven't explored yet, and maybe will at some point, is working out how your experience or the the experience of defence anaesthesia has transferred into civilian developments, because that's almost a whole topic in itself. And we may in due course consider that. But for the moment, thank you very much for what has been a fascinating insight into an aspect of anaesthesia that most of us never see and never participate in, but which has the most enormous impact on our practice and on the health and the safety of our civilian patients. And I'm I'm really grateful for your time and your expertise. (music) 